Hello, my name is Allison. The Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 26, 8 through 11. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, with awesome power and with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land full of milk and honey. So now I am bringing the early produce of the fertile ground that you, Lord, have given me. Set the produce before the Lord your God, bowing down before the Lord your God. Then celebrate all the good things the Lord your God has done for you and your family, each one of you among with the Levites and the immigrants who are among you. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Matthew. The New Testament reading is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 through 11. Everyone should give whatever they have decided in their heart. They shouldn't give with hesitation or because of pressure. God loves a cheerful giver. God has the power to provide you with more than enough of every kind of grace. That way, you have everything you need always and in everything to provide more than enough for every kind of good work. As it is written, he scattered everywhere. He gave to the needy. His righteousness remains forever. The one who supplies seed for planting and bread for eating will supply and multiply your seeds and will increase your crop, which is righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous in every way. Such generosity produces thanksgiving to God through us. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Colleen. If you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Stop collecting treasures for your own benefit on earth, where moth and rust eat them, and where thieves break in and steal them. Instead, collect treasures for yourselves in heaven, where moth and rust don't eat them, and where thieves don't break in and steal them. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. Therefore, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how terrible that darkness will be. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray today, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're here because we have heard the call of Jesus to come and follow him. Thank you for inviting us to be your disciples. So much of that is coming to you to learn from you, that we might know what it means to live like you in this world. So would you teach us today? Would you speak to us through your word and your spirit And help us to align our hearts and our lives with your kingdom plans and purposes in the world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, New Life downtown. It's good to see you. For the last, I don't know, year and a half or two years, one of the things I frequently hear around my house playing over some sort of soundtrack begins 1776. New York City. Well, I'm going to talk to you about what happened in New York City in 1776, but in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, on July 4th, 1776, the Second Continental Congress adopted the Declaration of U.S. 
independence. It's arguably one of the most important, significant, and influential documents that were ever written, particularly for those of us who call this place home. But arguably, it's not the most important, most significant, or most influential work penned that year. I know. Hang with me. (laughs) Three months earlier in London, Adam Smith, a Scottish philosopher, published a work called The Wealth of Nations. Adam Smith's work actually revolutionized economic thought and eventually impacted economies on a global scale. Much of the way that we think about economics has some sort of origin in whatever Adam Smith was writing at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. What happened at that time was, for most of history before then, For most of history before the Industrial Revolution and Adam Smith's work, the basic economic activities of production and distribution and consumption were guided and governed by the ethical imperatives of religious traditions. They were thought about primarily in religious and moral and ethical terms. But Smith called for a separation of faith and economics. He was convinced that if everyone acted according to their own self-interest rather than to any moral or religious imperatives, that it would actually be better for society. There is so much more to it than that, but that idea is really foundational to much of our thinking. We tend to want to keep faith and finances separate, at least 90% of it separate to some degree. It's similar to how we think in other areas, that we're interested in what Jesus has to say about some areas, less interested in what he has to say about others. Our tendency is actually to isolate significant parts of our spiritual life from our daily lives. We're interested, especially in what Jesus has to say about heaven and about resurrection and about life after death. We are less interested or maybe more unsettled by what Jesus has to say about life on earth. This is actually one of the reasons why I think it's awkward to talk about money in church. There are certainly other reasons for that. There are times, and many of us have experienced places, where we entrusted our resources into a church community only to learn that those finances were being misused. And we know the kind of heartbreak that happens when that mistrust is broken. Other of us have experienced situations in faith settings, whether in church or other gatherings, where a lot of the conversations about finances ended up being extremely manipulative. They were ways of talking about money uh, that ended up being really damaging to our own sense of, uh, of our life with God and our life with others. Some of us have experienced the abuses of the the misteachings of the prosperity gospel and the ways that finances were talked about there only leaving us confused or wanting or having things that we needed to then suddenly untangle. And yet for a lot of us, we find that our default, though, is actually not coming from the scriptures, it's coming from Adam Smith. It's a way of saying, Jesus, we can talk about these things, and I'm willing, Jesus, for you to speak into these parts of my life, but I'm less open, I'm less willing, I'm less interested, I'm certainly less comfortable (laughs) with you speaking into these other areas of my life. But what it means to follow Jesus 
is that followers of Jesus are learning to bring our entire lives under God's reign. Every aspect of our life, every moment of every day, what Jesus is wanting to teach us is how to align the entirety of ourselves with God's kingdom. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in the middle of a series right now, walking through Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, popularly called the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' own magnum opus on kingdom discipleship, teaching his followers what it means to walk in his way, what it means to follow him in the kingdom that has come to us. In today's passage, Jesus addresses the economy of the kingdom. It's not the first time in the sermon that Jesus has said something about money or finances or possessions. The very beginning of the sermon, Jesus pronounces blessing on the poor. Jesus teaches his followers to be generous in the face of injustice. He teaches us to give as an act of worship. He calls us to pray for our daily bread. And in praying, we're not just praying for my daily bread, but our daily bread, for actually the basic needs to be meant of the entire community and the entire world. Even in that same prayer, the prayer that we just prayed earlier, some traditions don't translate Jesus's words as forgive us of our sins or forgive us of our trespasses. Some translate it as forgive us of our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. And we'll see a financial sort of component to what the life in the kingdom is like. So he's already started to address some of these issues and now he just goes straight for it. And so, so are we. Matthew chapter six, verse 19. Jesus says this, he says, stop collecting treasures for your own benefit on earth where moths and rust eat them and where thieves can break in and steal them. Instead, collect treasures for yourselves in heaven, where moth and rust don't eat them, and where thieves don't break in and steal them. For wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Jesus uses really similar language talking about treasure in heaven in Matthew chapter 19 where there is this young man of significant means who comes to Jesus and asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And they begin to have a conversation around the Ten Commandments, and Jesus starts listing some of them, and the guy goes, I've done all of those things since birth. And then Jesus says, well, if you want to be complete, if you want to be whole, then go and sell what you own and give the money to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had many possessions. Jesus is getting right to the hearts of things for this young man and where his attachments were. He was more attached to his possessions than his desire to follow Jesus. Treasures in this context refers to possessions, of course, to the things that we own or the things that belong to us, but it's more than that. It goes deeper to where our hearts are and the sense of attachment that we have to things. Scott McKnight says that treasures in this context refers to the accumulation of things as a focus of joy. 
as a way of saying, if I just have more of this, if I have that instead of this, if I can accumulate more and more and more things, if I just have more than I currently have, then I will find joy in my life. We might think of it not so much in terms of joy, but accumulation of things is a focus of our security. Saying, if I just have this, then I will feel secure about my future. Sometimes we think about in terms of identity, that I am known by the things that I have, that my identity in life, or maybe even my significance in life, is deeply connected to possessions, to wealth, to finances. When I was a little kid, my dad collected toy tractors, like little combines and tractors and, you know, uh, and trailers and all those kind of things that went with them. And they lined the walls of our family room down in the basement where our TV was. I think this was my mom's preferred way of decorating as well, just having toys everywhere all along. But there was a sign in the middle of that toy collection that said this, he who dies with the most toys wins. This sense of like, if I can just have more than everybody else, then that will be a victorious sort of life. It's silly. I don't think any of us sit here and go, yeah, I've actually been really wanting some more John Deere combines to fill up my house. But how would we fill in that blank? He or she who dies with the most wins. What do we consider winning or prospering like? He or she who dies with the most net worth, he or she that dies with the most properties, with the most cars, with the most experiences, with the most travels, with the most, how do we fill in that blank? Later on in life, I saw another sign that said this, he who dies with the most toys still dies. I was like, I, I just, I can't think of the one sign without the other sign now. I almost bought the second one just to, as a constant reminder. But this gets at our own modern equivalence of what I think Jesus is getting at here with treasures. There's another famous quote that some of us know a version of this. Maybe you heard it in Financial Peace University from Dave Ramsey. The rest of us learned it on Fight Club from Tyler Durden. Um, but it actually originates in a 1924 article by a writer named Robert Quillen in the Detroit Free Press. And he was talking about America and talking about what he called Americanism. And he described the life of America, the life of Americanism this way. He says, Americanism is using money you haven't earned to buy things you don't need to impress people you don't like. Ouch. This is what we do, right? This is how we live. We spend money in ways that are unwise, sometimes even beyond our means, beyond what is sustainable in order to accumulate things that we don't need, in some cases to impress people that we don't even like. <laughs> but we do it for some reason, trying to find something to hold on to. And Jesus contrasts this way of treasuring with another way. This first part of the passage, he contrasts two treasures, two approaches to acquisitions, to securities, to significance, to joy, to identity. He says there's one way that's built on self-interest that follows exactly what Adam Smith is commending to the world in 1776. Just going about this focused solely on oneself, focused on the immediate 
and personal benefit to us in a temporal and unpredictable world (laughs) with moth and rust and thieves and markets that we can't make sense of and you go on and on and on. He said, there's a way of treasuring that is fully invested into this world, into those things. And he says, but there's another that's built on the care for others. It's focused not on the immediate personal rewards for us in this world, but on the rewards that are only found in the eternal promised kingdom of God. It's focused in a different way. And he says that whatever we treasure and wherever we treasure it, Wherever it is that we are looking to accumulate things for the sense of meaning and identity and significance and security and joy, that whatever that is and wherever it is, it actually tells us something about our hearts. That wherever our treasure is, that's where our heart will be also. It tells us either our heart is already there or our heart is going there quickly. And we'll find our whole lives wrapped up In that economy, one is built on self-interest. The other one is built in a different way. And then he tells us, goes on, and Jesus says to stop storing up temporal treasures, but instead to store up treasures in the kingdom of God. And the way that we stop... The way that we stop doing that as the people of God, the way that the people of God throughout time and history and place have gone about sort of resisting this full enmeshment in a temporary economy is through the practice of simplicity. And I know what you're thinking, Jason, every time that you talk about money, you talk about simplicity. You're starting to sound like a Nickelback song, just like the same thing, like every time. I'm not even sure the beat has changed. It's just, oh, we're, we're listening to this again? <laughs> I, I know that. But this is the consistent theme throughout Scripture. And when we look at the canon of Scripture, we're continually finding God imploring us as the people of God to embrace simplicity, to live in simple ways. And it actually is quite countercultural. I know that there's a, a huge movement towards simplicity in our world. We find you know, now documentaries on Netflix about the personal benefit of simplicity. But the approach to simplicity that it takes is still self-interested. The approach of the kingdom for simplicity is actually about others interested. It's thinking about the way that we live in a way that includes other people. And what we learn is that simplicity actually divests us from the temporary economies of the world. This is what the practice of simplicity does for us. Over time, the disciplines of saying no, the disciplines of fasting, of reducing, of learning to live with less, free us from the cultural compulsion, the obsessive desire for more and more and more or for the new or for the novel or for the unique. And over time, that actually ushers us into a spacious life of contentment and gratitude in our relationship with God and the things that we have been entrusted with. Simplicity doesn't mean that we don't work hard. It doesn't mean that we're not wise with our resources. It doesn't mean that we don't save, that we don't invest, that we don't plan, that we don't have insurance, that we don't think about those things. It doesn't mean that. And it doesn't mean that we don't celebrate. 
It doesn't mean that we devalue the things that are good and beautiful in this world. It doesn't mean any of those things. It does mean that we are the people who take time to distinguish between what we want and what we need. Then when we're thinking about purchasing something, we ask ourselves, do we want this or do we need this? And if this is a want, if this is a desire, how strong is that desire? And what does that desire tell me about my heart? What does it tell me about what's actually going on inside of me? And by attaining this, am I trying to acquire something that that can't actually deliver? Am I hoping by having that, I'll find something that can actually only find in the kingdom of God? Is there something going on inside of me? It means that we ask those questions. It means that we habitually and disciplined ways of living under our means. It means that we look honestly at our budgets. We budget and we look honestly at them and say, what percentage of my budget is devoted right now to things that are unnecessary, to things that are luxuries, to things that are over and beyond? And what percentage is actually devoted to caring for other people? How are those percentages working out? And where is the voice of Jesus in that? What is it telling me about my heart? And where is the invitation of God? Jesus then goes on to illustrate this point by contrasting two eyes. He says this, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. And therefore, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light in you is darkness, how terrible will that darkness be? This is kind of strange language for Jesus. Talking about light on the inside and the eye being a lamp. But in the first century, there were two theories about how eyes worked. One believed, one theory believed that eyes let light in. And the other theory believed that the eye let light out. Jesus is working with that latter image here. Saying the eye is the lamp of the body. And out of it is coming either light or darkness, depending upon what is going on inside of us. That the condition of our eyes actually tells us something about the condition of our hearts, the condition of our relationship with God and the relationship that we have to the world and its possessions. In Greek, actually, the original language doesn't say healthy eye. It says single eye. Jesus contrasts a single eye with an evil eye. And at the time in Jesus's world, to have a single eye meant that you were generous. And to have an evil eye meant that you were greedy. That something about what was going on inside of us, if we were generous, light's coming out of us. Greed shows darkness is coming out of us and consuming the world around us. And the way that we know where our heart is, the treasure test, if you will, for Jesus is whether or not we're generous. That that actually shows us the condition of our hearts. If simplicity divests us from the temporary economies of the world, then generosity actually invests us in the kingdom of God. This is what generosity does. It invests us in God's kingdom. The goal of the scriptures is not for us to give a certain percentage of our income. Though that is certainly a good practice. But the goal of the scriptures is for us to become generous people. 
That's the goal of the scriptures. All of the instructions that we find in the Old and New Testament are meant to teach us what it means to live open-handed lives rather than tight-fisted, to be invested in the kingdom rather than holding on to the possessions of this world. All of the instructions are meant to teach us what it means to be people whose character actually reflects the very character of God, who know the generous God and then live in generous ways. But the way that we become generous is through intentional practices over time. We don't just suddenly wake up one day and say, yesterday I was greedy, I've been greedy for 40 years, and now suddenly I'm generous. Guess what happens when you wake up tomorrow? (laughs) It's likely that you might revert back. It's practices over the course of time that help us to know the character of God and invite the Spirit of God to come and actually bring God's character inside of us. And the scriptures consistently commend two practices for us. I'm going to give them titles here that are my way of trying to like talk about these things. They're not great titles and they overlap with one another, but just bear with me. The first one is this. The first one we can call worshipful giving. All throughout the scriptures, we see the people of God offering a portion of their produce or their income as an act of worship, as a way of giving thanks to God, as a way of uh, returning to him what they know has come from him. We saw this in our Old Testament reading. We hear the people of God living in the land in Deuteronomy have gathered up the portion of their produce, the first fruits of their harvest. They bring it to the tabernacle or to the temple. They lay it before the priest and they say, so now I am bringing the early produce, the first fruits of the fertile ground that you have given me, Lord. I'm giving it to you as an act of worship as an act of recognizing that you gave me the land, you gave me the ability to work, you gave us the seeds, you gave us the rain, you gave us the sun, and now I'm taking a portion of what you've brought forth from that land and I'm bringing it to you as an act of worship. The early church continues this practice in all kinds of ways. One of the images that we get is Acts chapter four. says that the early church, there were no needy persons among them Because those who owned properties or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds from the sales and place them in the care and under the authority of the apostles, under the church leaders. And then it was distributed to anyone who had need. That as they gathered together, they brought gifts, they brought tithes, they brought offerings, they brought sacrificial worship as an act of giving to God. In the Old Testament, sometimes this is referred to as the tithe of giving 10% of someone's produce or someone's income. But it's interesting when you look at the entirety of the Old Testament, the collective teaching is a much higher percentage than that. It's much higher than 10%. And it actually includes a whole lot more of their lives than we typically think of. And this was especially true for the wealthy. This was especially true for those who had means. And interestingly, those practices were not required for the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the stranger. Those that actually had no resources were dependent upon the generosity of others were not required to bring anything into those spaces or what they were required to bring would change to reflect where they were at in their life and their socioeconomic status. In the New Testament, we don't even find percentages being used. There's no mention of 10% other than a mention of a tithe and saying do these things and more. Instead, what we find in the New Testament is the telling of stories. The story about the widow with the mite. 
who's bringing a very small gift, but the amount of sacrifice that it was was huge. And her story still gets told today, not because she gave an extravagant amount, but she gave generously and sacrificially in worship. Tells the story of the rich young ruler that we just talked about who was so connected to his things that they mattered more to him than following Jesus. Tells the story of Ananias and Sapphira who actually took a generous act and sold property and were willing to give it, but then they were lying about how much they gave. And the story doesn't end well for them. And overall, the sense we get from the New Testament is we're encouraged for each of us to discern the story that God is telling in our lives and the story that God is telling through our lives as it relates to our wealth, to our finances, to our property, to our belongings. There's something being told there and we're supposed to discern. Paul puts it this way. He says, everyone should give whatever they have decided in their heart. Everyone should give whatever they have discerned. And they shouldn't give with hesitation or because of pressure, but instead as an act of worship because God loves a cheerful giver. So the gifts, the tithes, the offerings, all of those things, what we see throughout the scriptures is the people of God giving as an act of worship in the context of the church, entrusting then a portion of income to the leaders to provide for the needs of the faith community. This is why we do an offering every week. If you consider yourself a member of New Life Downtown, a part of this community, the invitation is to bring a portion, whatever it is that you've decided in your heart as you've discerned with God, to bring it as a sacrificial offering, as a way of worship, and as a way of caring for our life together as a church. The second way that we see giving sort of take place, and again, there's overlap here, is what we might call missional giving. It's additional giving that's meant to directly benefit others, Oftentimes, those who are outside of the community or those within the community that are facing incredibly difficult times, particularly to the poor or to those that are sent out as missionaries to bring the gospel or bring development and care and resources to the world. This is, of course, also an act of worship. And so there's overlap here. And we do it even with our own giving here. At least 10% of everything that New Life Church receives as a tithe or an offering goes out into our city and into our world. It goes out to meet the needs of our city and to care for our world with the gospel and the resources that have been entrusted to us. In the Old Testament, we see all kinds of things where farmers are told not to reap to the edges of their field, but that the poor, the orphan, the widow, the stranger, the immigrant might come and be able to harvest and have food to eat. They're commanded to not lend to the poor in charge or to lend to the poor without interest. To say, we know that you've fallen on rough times and we want to do everything that we can to help you find your way back on your feet and to not do that as a benefit to ourselves, but only as a benefit to the other person. In the New Testament, Paul is going around traveling to churches and collecting an offering for the church in Jerusalem that's fallen on hard times to benefit other believers in another part of the world. He himself goes about making tents to help provide for his living, but he also has churches that are sponsoring him. The church in Philippi is giving money to Paul to fund his missionary journeys. For Sarah and I, this is an ongoing conversation of discipleship for us. That one of the challenging things that we find in the teachings of the scripture and the teachings of Jesus is that God is always wanting to speak to us in this area. 
that there's never a sort of place where it's like we hit this place and now God's discipleship for us in this area is over. Instead, we find that Jesus is continuing to talk to us in ways that make me really uncomfortable. <laughs> Sometimes make me mad. <laughs> like, really? But all of a sudden, what happens in that is it reveals the condition of my own heart. What's actually going on inside of me? And I have to remember, okay, Jesus, you're teaching me what it means to be a generous person because you're a generous God. And so we set a goal for ourselves to give a higher percentage of our gross income away every single year. Sometimes we haven't been able to do that. Sometimes we've only been able to give away like, you know, 0.1% more, 0.005% more. But it's a discipline for us to say, how is it that we can practice generosity and knowing that generosity actually costs us something? That the generosity that the scripture is talking about are not an amount, but about a sacrifice, a, a, a generosity that costs us something. So there have been seasons that wasn't possible. There were seasons early on in our marriage and seminary when we had young kids that it was just, okay, Lord, we're, we're trying to give whatever we can here, but we're having a hard time making ends meet. But then there have been other seasons where we found God's grace and provision for us. And so we look at our finances every year and we prayerfully go through, okay, Lord, what are you asking us to give this year? And we give first and foremost in Life Downtown to our worshipful giving as members of this congregation and then to local partners who are working with people in our city who are on the margins, who are struggling, and then to missionaries to bring the gospel and bring development to all of the world. We're trying to find ways to live into generosity. And I think it's so important for us, whatever that story is, whatever we're discerning, that's what we're discerning in our life with Jesus is that invitation is that we always remember, though, why we're doing this. Why is it that we're giving? We don't give to get more back. That's not the heart behind it, is to give to then sort of force God's hand to give us something more. No, we give to walk in the way of Jesus. We don't give to give a tax break. Then that's a nice benefit, I'll take it. <laughs> but that's not the motive for giving. When it becomes about a tax break, it's no longer about worship or about care. It's about something else. We don't give to gain power or influence. We don't give in for the sake of controlling others or controlling God. We give as an act of love, as an act of worship, as an act of thanks, as an act of trust, as a discipleship act of defiance against the world that's trying to teach us something to live in a different way that's actually incompatible with the kingdom. And we give as an act of sacrifice and prayer, trusting that God will actually take care of our needs and will be changed. It will be transformed. This is what Paul says. He says, the one who supplies seeds for planting and bread for eating will supply and multiply your seed and will increase your crop. But then look what he says the crop is. Righteousness. That our lives might be more aligned with God's character and God's kingdom. We miss that so many times. We think if we just give and give and give, then that will force God's hand to give us more and more and more. But what God promises to give us, he promises to meet our needs and he promises to instill his righteousness inside of us, to align our lives with his character and with his kingdom. That's our crop. Our treasures are in a world that's to come. A world where there is no lack, there is no need, there is abundance for everywhere and for everybody everywhere all the time. And that's what we're actually longing for. 
as the worship team comes up today and Pastor Evan comes to lead us to the table, Jesus concludes by contrasting two lords or two masters. He says there's two treasures and he says there's two eyes and he says there's two lords or masters. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other or you'll be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. Jesus is using a well-known Jewish idiom where he's talking about love and hate. It's an emphatic way of talking about the demands of exclusive loyalty, the demands that we find throughout Scripture where God wants us to have one and only God. And Jesus says it's impossible. Literally, we're not able to serve both, to serve both God and wealth. Craig Blomberg puts it this way. He's a New Testament scholar. He says that this is true, that we cannot serve both God and money in the sense of making an ultimate commitment to both at the same time, then there is no more telling test of true discipleship than the use of our finances. Every time I read it, it hurts. <laughs> Causes all kinds of emotions to come up for me. One of those is anxiety, which by the way is what Jesus talks about next. So the very next passages that we're gonna talk about next week is the anxiety that we feel around these conversations. But Paul puts it this way. He says, you know, as challenging as that is, here's what Paul wants us to remember, that God has the power to provide you with more than enough of every kind of grace. That way you will have everything you need always and in everything to provide more than enough for every kind of good work, providing for us that we might participate and his provision for the world, and his provision for others. See, the call that God gives to us is a call that comes to us from a generous God. The God who calls us to a life of generosity is the one who is abundantly generous to us always and in everything. God is abundant in generosity toward us. He not only gives us everything that we need for life and for godliness, but God gives us himself that's the very demonstration that we have of sacrificial generosity is Jesus giving his whole life for us. That as we come to practice simplicity and generosity, we remember every week here at the table the God whose costly generosity gave his whole life for us. And that everything that we have is a gift from him. It's a gift of his generosity. And we're being invited to experience his character and to experience his kingdom, even in our finances. And this idea of God's generosity, everything that Jesus was, everything he had, given so abundantly for us is the draw, is the invitation of this table every week. And it's the practice that we take to say, we recognize it in you, we practice it with you, and then we're sent out carrying that generosity to the world. So here we are again. This is Jesus's table. All who believe in Jesus as the true king of the world are welcome to receive regardless of your church background or affiliation. If you don't 
believe and profess in this faith in Jesus as we believe, thank you for choosing to spend Sunday morning with us. It is great and we're honored that you're here. And we encourage you, keep coming, keep asking questions, keep seeking and knocking. And if you are in this space and you're ready to believe in Jesus and follow his teachings, maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time, we invite you to join with us as we confess our sin and ask forgiveness and place our trust in him. During this season, our confession is gonna be taken from Psalm 51 now and through the rest of Lynn. So the words will come up on the screen. Let's confess together. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot up the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion and it haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Because we are faithful to confess he is faithful to forgive. So it is my joy this morning to announce good news to you, words that are true, not because I say them, but because of what God has done. So would you open up your hands and receive again the mercy of God, that Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. And this proves God's love toward us. So in the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. The peace of the Lord be with you. As those who have been raised to new life with Jesus, would you stand together right now, greet those around you, and as we practice in Lent, extend the forgiveness of Jesus to one another by saying hello, and then, in the name of Jesus, you are forgiven.